0: I'm Zachary Cartwright. This is Water in Food. Today, my guest is Dr. Minto Michael at Washington State University. He is an assistant professor and his lab primarily focuses on dairy microbiology and food safety. In the past, some of his projects have focused around water activity and how it relates to controlling pathogens in baked products and cooking processes, as well as in milk powder. Let's learn about some of Dr. Michael's previous work, as well as his current research interests in this episode of Water in Food. All right. Well, hi, Dr. Minto-Michael. Welcome to Water and Food. Thanks for coming here today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, we don't do too many in-person podcasts, but uh, we're excited to have you here in in the studio. And uh, I just want to first off talk about your role at Washington State University. What do you do there?
1: So I'm an assistant professor of dairy science Mm -hmm. uh, in the School of Food Science at Washington State University. Mm -hmm. And I have 70% research and 30% teaching responsibilities. Mm-hmm. In terms of teaching, I teach uh, dairy processing and some introductory uh, food science courses. And in terms of research, uh, my research is mainly focused on dairy microbiology and food safety. Mm-hmm. But I do a little bit of dairy product development and dairy processing, um, lots of validation work. So basically I was hired at WSU to establish a strong dairy science teaching and research
0: program and how long have you been there
1: uh four and a half years mm-hmm. i started in august 2018.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you run this dairy microbiology lab is that uh, a group of students or other professors who who makes up that laboratory
1: so mainly students mm-hmm. so i'm the main uh, pi principal investigator or director of lab but um all the hard work is done by my students, so it's my brain, but their hard work. Sure. So I have a PhD students, master students, and undergraduate students.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, right now, we are trying to expand in terms of undergraduate students, but last semester we had total ten students: oh,
0: wow. a PhD, mm-hmm.
1: two masters, and six undergraduate.
0: And where did your own interest in food safety and, and dairy microbiology? Where does this stem from? Yeah, that's a good question.
1: Uh, so my bachelor's degree is in food engineering. So as an engineer, I hated microbiology. Mm-hmm. So the only thing I liked about microbiology was Saccharomyces cerevisiae mm-hmm. because that's the yeast you can make your beer, beer with, right? Right. So that's, and, wine, that's yeah. the, <laughs> and wine. So that was the only thing I liked about microbiology, but I love designing machines and working with machines and mathematics. But uh, in 2007, I came to uh, U.S. at mm-hmm. Kansas State University to start my graduate school. Mm -hmm. And the only place I could find assistantship was in uh, food safety and defense laboratory. And I said, well, I need assistantship to survive, so I'm (laughs) going to do it. And I started working and luckily I was blessed to have really nice professors. Mm -hmm. So my uh, assistantship work was in food microbiology lab and we were doing lots of pathogen inactivation work uh, with pet food that time. And for my master's uh, research, uh, I had another Professor Dr. Schmidt, and that was mainly focused on probiotics. So I started working in microbiology with good and bad bacteria at the same time. And within a few months, I just fell in love with microbiology. Mm -hmm. And I was very happy to give up my engineering and start working in microbiology and decided, okay, I'm going to get a PhD in food safety and microbiology, and then focus my career in Mm Microbiology and safety.
0: And my background is kind of similar, actually. I started off in civil engineering at one time and got into biochemistry and then Uh found wine microbiology. And and then Uh that brought me to Washington State. So kind of similar Similar, and still Saccharomyces (laughs) cerevisiae, there's something about it. (laughs) Yes. and I understand when you were at Kansas State University, some of your research mm-hmm. focused or had a, a water activity component mm-hmm. and you were looking at baked foods and pathogens. Mm-hmm. Can you describe that research a little and, and how you used water activity in those projects? Yes,
1: sure. So as I said, when I started, I started working with good and bad bacteria, both together. So Dr. Randall Phoebus that was his lab, food um, uh, microbiology lab, where I started working. And the first project I was part was pet food. Mm-hmm. So what they were doing was they were putting some antimicrobial coatings and then they were drying that pet food product. And that was the period when I was not an expert, I was still learning sure. how to inoculate products, what happens when you dry water activity decreases. So basically we were trying to see the impact of antimicrobials plus water activity to see how the bacteria are going to die. And that was the first product, uh, project I worked, uh, related to, uh, uh, water activity and microbial inactivation. But then when I started my PhD, one of the component of my PhD project was to see the heat resistance of uh, Cronobacter sakazaki and Salmonella in milk powders. Mm-hmm. And I was doing that using regular um, uh, heat treatment, but I another important component was trying to see if we can use radio frequency heating mm-hmm. uh, to kill these uh, pathogens in milk powders. And that was a major component when I actually started focusing on uh, low water activity food products. So basically we were trying to see if we can use radio frequencies to inactivate these pathogens in milk powders. And then uh, another important component that I started doing at that point was D and Z values, thermal inactivation kinetics of pathogens in low water activity foods, but practically in anything I can do that. But that was the first component. So I started with pet food, then moved into milk powders. And now I still continue doing milk powders. I also did one project uh, with flour at Mm K-State. And that was when, I'm not sure, I think it was around 2015 or so when we had outbreak related to flour that was E. coli O26, E. coli O121. So we we wanted to see how long these E. coli can survive in flower at low water activity. Mm-hmm. And we could find them after one years of, one year of uh, inoculation. And I think sure. there were samples left. And even about one and a half, two years, they were still present there.
0: And is it forming a spore? Or, or how is it lasting for such a long time in mm-hmm. conditions that aren't favorable for growth?
1: So so these uh, uh, pathogens like E. coli salmonella, they don't form spores. Mm-hmm. So the spore formers, for example, bacillus. So what? happens to them is when they find harsher conditions they 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 form spores mm-hmm. and spores are just dormant cells or uh, in in very uh, simplistic way they are like dormant eggs sitting in a harsh condition waiting for nice environments to be encountered and then they'll start multiplying mm-hmm. but in non spore formers uh, the mechanism is different and I'm not the best person to explain that, but I can give you a basic understanding what happens is. So mm-hmm. So when a vegetative cell like Salmonella E. coli, they uh, encounter low water activity environment. So first thing they need to do is to protect their cell integrity. Because what happens is if you have high moisture content in the cell and the outer environment is dry, the moisture is start gonna move from inside to outside of the cell and they're gonna lose the uh, shape, form, biochemical activities inside the cell. So Mm -hmm. first thing bacteria does is it start either importing solutes from outside inside the cell, or it will produce or generate some solutes inside the cell so that the osmotic pressure is maintained Mm -hmm. and the integrity of cell can be maintained. Other thing what bacteria does it, it stops multiplying. You know, if, if you don't multiply, you don't age, you Mm -hmm. can survive longer. Right. So what they do is they stop multiplying and they try to prevent their cells that are already existing rather than trying to spend energy in multiplying. Mm -hmm. So they stop multiplying, they increase the solute content inside the cells so that they can survive that low moisture environment. Mm -hmm. But there are some other factors also. We are still trying to learn more about what is the exact mechanism. Mm-hmm. But these are two very basic and simple mechanisms how this serve.
0: Sure. And it's crazy to me how fast a, a microorganism can multiply. Mm. And, and something I was just reading about is even if you have a single cell or a single pathogen in a mm-hmm. square inch, if you leave it and it, it's under favorable conditions, it can turn into a, a billion cells oh, yes. in like 12 hours. So yes. um, it's really interesting to see, you know, how water activity or how other hurdles can yes. prevent that growth. When you did these studies, what were some of your major takeaways? You know, Did you find a, a certain temperature, mm-hmm. um, time combination uh, with water activity w- that was able to remove uh, the pathogens that you looked at? What What can the industry learn from some of the projects that you've done?
1: Yes, that's a really good question. And uh, the, f- the most important thing that comes to my mind when people talk about low water activity food is lots of time they refer low water activity food activity foods as comparatively safe food mm-hmm. right that's what the perception is and and that's fine if you look at from one angle but if you look like just having low water activity doesn't guarantee food safety mm-hmm. because let's say if you have a low water activity food product like a milk powder right or your pre post workout powders right you, you rehydrate you hydrate and then you drink but let's say if those low water activity powders are contaminated with e coli or salmonella mm-hmm those pathogens are still going to be there. Mm -hmm. They are not dying in low water activity food products. The only thing that's happening is that they are not multiplying. But when you hydrate those powders, well, you are providing perfect environment for those pathogens to grow, and then you will get sick (laughs) if they multiply. So saying that low water activity products are inherently safer than the high water activity is not accurate. Mm -hmm. So the best way to make your low water activity food products safe is to prevent the contamination of food. Mm-hmm. So prevention is the best technique. You can make those low water activity food, uh, safer. And the other thing is, uh, The inactivation of uh, pathogens in these low water activity food products really depends upon multiple factors. It depends upon water activity, but it's also going to depend how much fat you have, protein you have, sugar you have, because those components tend to protect uh, microbial cells against thermal inactivation. Mm -hmm. So the composition of food matrix along with the uh, uh, water activity is a very important component. So these are some important things we should keep in mind when we're talking about safety of uh, low water activity food products.
0: And how do you choose what method or or what um, way to remove these microorganisms? How do you decide if you want to use heat or radio waves or high pressure or, or something else? Oh, yeah. What does that process look like?
1: So lots of time. Uh, uh, if we are just doing uh, testing our hypothesis, mm-hmm. just the uh, thermal resistance, then we just use our traditional methods of heating. Mm-hmm. In lab, we use water bath to determine Z values and thermal inactivation parameters. But let's say if we talk about practical applications, uh, you have a food processing facility and you want to study some specific techniques. Mm-hmm. That's when we will actually just use whatever you want to use. So... Um, Lots of time, it's difficult to treat low water activity powders for a few reasons. One is that you need to heat them at higher temperatures or longer time to kill those pathogens. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you are actually destroying the quality of the product. Mm -hmm. This is true for flour, milk powders. So lots of time, what we do is we, uh, to preserve the quality, we assist that uh, regular heating, with microwaves or radio frequency heating so that the overall treatment can be decreased in terms of um, treatment time. The shorter is the time, lesser is the loss in quality. So that's when we'll say, okay, we wanna preserve quality, let's introduce radio frequency heating. Can we see if uh, uh, facilitating the heating with microwaves gonna help? So it depends upon the uh, desire of the company they wanna do it. Mm-hmm. But most important thing based on my understanding is, uh, you know, we we are very reluctant in terms of using irradiation, mm-hmm. right? I don't think scientists are, but consumers are. Sure. But if you want to kill pathogens and you still want to preserve the quality of your food, I personally think irradiation is the best technique mm-hmm. to improve the safety of um, low water activity powders like milk or uh, milk powders or flour.
0: mm mm-hmm i think you brought up a good point it it really depends on the goal or maybe Mm -hmm. the matrix or type of food for example i know that some processes like high pressure processing actually if you start with a high water activity above Mm 0.92 then those type of processes work even better at a high water activity and and that's a good point that with these powders they're already so low that if you're going to introduce heating then you're going to change that matrix and maybe cause browning reactions or unwanted uh, changes in that food so really depends on the matrix and and as well as the goal. Um, I want to talk a little bit about your current research projects. Mm -hmm. What, what are you currently working on that, uh, excites you right now?
1: Oh, so. I love dairy and I love microbiology so I'm living the American dream. <laughs> so 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 I I I I've always wanted to focus my research on microbiology mm-hmm. uh, and have worked with multiple food matrices like um, beef, poultry, fresh produce, pet food, dairy, bakery but dairy was always closest to my heart. And mm-hmm. that's what I do in my dairy microbiology lab. Dairy and microbiology work with pathogens and probiotics. So <laughs> I, I love doing uh, doing what I do but my lab is uh, nationally recognized for two technologies.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, the first one is called hyperspectral imaging. And that's a technique where we com- where we combine regular photography with spectroscopy. So we can get two types of data. We get spectral data and we get just the visual data from that technique. So what we're trying to do is we try to take photographs of uh, either bacterial cells or bacterial colonies on the plate and try to identify if this is E. coli, Salmonella, Listeria. Mm-hmm. So traditional microbiological methods will take somewhere from two to five or six days to give you a confirmatory identification of a bacteria. If you have an unknown, you wanna do traditional microbiology, it's gonna take a few days to see whether it's E. coli, Salmonella, Listeria. Using hyperspectral imaging, we can do that within a few minutes. But at right now, we do have to do enrichment. That would be, you know, somewhere from 18 to 24 hours. But once you have enriched sample, hyperspectral imaging has a capability of telling you what bacteria this is within a few minutes. Oh, wow. So this technology is very young Mm -hmm. uh, in food safety. This technology is widely used in agriculture. Uh, It's used in our military to identify enemy uh, tanks and other things. But in food safety, it is very new. So there are very few scientists working on this technology, Uh, but uh, we are trying to develop a system where we can actually use this for rapid identification. The second technology my lab is working on is called uh, ultrafine bubbles Mm -hmm. or nanobubbles. So in simple terms, we introduce really minute nanoscale bubbles in food matrices or wherever uh, we want to put in and use those nanobubbles to see if we can do something. So we use them in two ways. First thing we do is we incorporate nanobubbles in antimicrobial solutions, for example, chlorine water, uh, uh, acidic water, or parasitic uh, solutions. And then we see what happens to bacteria. and my research has shown that that if we start incorporating carbon dioxide nanobubbles in these antimicrobial solutions, we can significantly increase the potency of the kill. Mm-hmm. So you can use the same concentration, but you're going to get way more log reductions.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the other thing mm-hmm. we are using our mm-hmm. nanobubbles is to promote the growth of probiotics. So this is something I'm still working. Uh, I have a good indication this will be working, but we don't have a confirmatory proof. But uh, preliminary work shows if we incorporate carbon dioxide or nitrogen nanobubbles in milk and we ferment those milks, for example, to make yogurt or kefir, then we can increase the longevity of probiotics in the product because all the yogurt or probiotic products you buy in the market, they're good as long as the probiotics in them are alive. Mm-hmm. If they're dead, then they're still going to be tasty, but you're not going to get benefits of probiotics. So this technology, nanobubble, has a ability to increase the longevity of probiotics in the product and hence the shelf life of the product. So we can kill using nanobubbles and we can save using mm-hmm. nanobubbles. So those are the things. <laughs>
0: And when it comes to the the future of food safety, do you see either of these technologies maybe leading the way or or causing the next big improvement? Or is there something else that we should be aware of that you know of? I'm
1: pretty sure there are multiple things that can be the next big thing, depending upon the researcher and the group we talk to. Mm. But based on my uh, knowledge of hyperspectral imaging and nanobubble technology, yes, I do think they have great potentials. Uh, hyperspectral imaging is just um, been studied i'm not aware if they are implementing in food science uh, right now or food processing but hyperspectral imaging can be used for quality and safety purposes because let's say if you have a you want to sort ripened apples from unripened ones you can just mount a hyperspectral imaging on a processing line and that just simply can look at differentiate between ripened and unripened. Mm-hmm. We can use this technology to determine moisture content, protein content of food products, just taking the photographs.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And again, for safety, we can identify what bacteria is present uh, in a sample in a few minutes. So it, it has huge potential. Nanoverbal technology, again, has huge potential in improving the longevity of probiotics, killing pathogens more efficiently. We haven't studied that, but Hypothetically, in theory, nanobubbles may also have potential in improving the texture, textural quality of food products if we incorporate Mm -hmm. nanobubbles in products like yogurt. Can Mm -hmm. it improve the overall texture or the body of yogurt? That is something we need to study. But there is a potential Mm -hmm. that these two technologies can be a huge implementation in future in the food processing area.
0: And if somebody listening wants to learn more about food mm-hmm. safety or, or maybe join an organization that focuses on food safety, mm-hmm. are there certain divisions or organizations that you're a part of uh, that okay. maybe you present to or that you organize with?
1: Yes. So International Association for Food Protection, mm-hmm. that is IAFP. That is the best organization you can be a part of if you want to learn or contribute towards food safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, we meet every year. Um mostly during summer, mostly in America. And there are food safety folks, microbiologists all around the world attending that conference. It's a three-day conference. And we discuss about new inventions, discoveries, or regulatory things going on in food safety. That is the best way to learn about food microbiology safety and stay up to date. But uh, other organizations like IFT, Institute of Food Technologists, Mm -hmm. that is also really good because IFT is not focused on food safety, but food safety is an important component of IFT
0: as well. And IFT has lots of different divisions. And I'm I'm actually a part of the quality management division. And just recently, we decided that food safety will now be part of the quality division as yes. well. Okay. So I think any of these organization organizations are a really good starting point to yes. you know get involved, especially if you're interested in, in food safety. Yes. Um, I noticed that you teach a, a couple different classes yes. at WSU, of, of course, uh, dairy processing, uh, but you also have one called science on your plate. Yes. And that one just kind of caught my attention. I was wondering what that class is about and and who can take that course.
1: Yes, so I love teaching that class. So when I became a grad student, so I, I, when I joined masters, I, all I wanted to do was become a professor. Mm-hmm. And one of the most important thing I wanted to do was to teach uh, an introductory food science course because people don't know about food science, right? You tell someone I'm a food scientist, so basically they'll think you're a cook or a chef. Yeah, right? chef, that's and, what I get, yeah. And there is nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. but. Most of food scientists are very bad cooks, (laughs) if you know that, right? they're not very good cooks. And that was the same thing because when uh, I never wanted to do food engineering, Mm -hmm. I wanted to uh, do uh, electronic engineering where I can write codes and build robots. Uh, But I couldn't get into that. It was a huge competition in India. Mm -hmm. Lots of population competing for lots of big (laughs) engineering uh, courses, right? So I couldn't get it. But my father suggested like, hey, you should try food engineering. It's a new field. There are not many food engineers and probably you can do really good. And I said, well, I didn't get what I wanted. Let me try food engineering. And I was pretty sure within a few weeks or months, I'm going to switch the major. But luckily, I had a really nice professor who taught me Introduction to Food Science. And I realized, well, actually, I'm going to become an engineer. I will be a scientist. And I decided to stick with food uh, science as my major. And that's one of the things I wanted to do. When I become a professor, I wanted to tell people like what exactly food science is. Mm-hmm. And that's what I do in Science on Your Plate. So this is a U-Core course. That means a common university requirement course at WSU. That means any undergraduate student who needs a Science course can enroll in it, and since I don't get the science background students, I get students from uh, management, uh, apparel designing, uh, lots of non-science majors. So what I do is I teach science in a very basic uh, form where a student can learn about food science, but they are not scared of all. Oh, you know, molecular structures and microorganisms. So I tell them about basic chemistry of food, composition of food, basic microbiology of food, basic safety of food. Uh, Then we talk about misconceptions of food, you know. Oh, it's okay if you drop your food on floor and count to five and you can still (laughs) eat it and pick it, right? Those kinds of misconceptions. Mm -hmm. What is organic food? Uh, Lots of times people think organic food is really healthy and really good for you. And then I have to tell them, no, it's just a choice. Both organic and non-organic is fine. It just depends upon you what you want to eat. Mm-hmm. So all those kinds of things, and then uh, we go to our WSU Creamery and mm-hmm. have a tour there. And it's it's a really fun course. I just started teaching it in fall of 2021, and uh, first time I taught it, I had about 28 students. I taught it last semester, and it was 50 students. Oh wow! So I'm hoping. <laughs> to make this class to 200 students Mm -hmm. and it it, is received well. I've gotten really positive feedback and I really want like uh, to educate people on food science and remove lots of misconceptions about Mm -hmm. food.
0: (laughs) And I agree. I think, you know, a lot of people aren't quite aware what food science is. And I have noticed though, over the past, even five years that, there are more and more food science programs and food science students. And mm-hmm. so I, I think that there's growing interest in it. But I, I think the sooner we can reach out yes. to more people and educate them about it, the more food scientists yes. we're going to get yes. um, out of it. If there happen to be any Cougs listening to this, yes. when do you teach this? Is this every fall, every semester? Mm-hmm. And what was what the course number?
1: So I teach right now I'm teaching it every fall. Okay So every fall I teach Science on your Plate, and the course number is FS201. Mm-hmm. But as I said, if course um, get you know really famous and well accepted in WSEO, then I do plan to take it from fall to summer, and if needed, I will start teaching it in spring. Mm-hmm. But right now it's offered only in fall, but I have also filed a paperwork for a lab portion for this course. Mm-hmm. So Science on your Plate lab that would be fs202 so if that get uh, gets approved then i'll be offering a lab portion and they, that won't be a required lab it will be an optional lab where people who are in uh, science on your plate lecture can also take lab portion and they can actually work in food science labs uh, basics of food chemistry microbiology will go to wsu creamery make cheeses make ice creams so that The paperwork is done, but I'm not sure whether it will get approved or not. But if it Mm -hmm. gets approved, then we'll also offer the lab. Mm
0: -hmm. Sounds fun. Sign me up. (laughs) And uh, if you need any guest speakers, if I can help you get to 200, I'd be happy to come. Definitely, I'll call you for sure. (laughs) Uh, My last question is, you know, if there's anybody listening here who's uh, maybe going into grad school or thinking about a a PhD or master's program, and they've heard about your lab now, how can they get a hold of you and how can they apply to be in your group?
1: Yeah, they can just Google my name and they can find my phone number and my email address and contact me directly. So I always welcome new grad students. Uh, For now, what I'm doing is I'm not hiring any grad students right now Mm -hmm. because I have started some projects that I would like to finish. I would like to graduate my current graduate students. And then maybe by end of summer, I plan to hire new students. Right now, I'm pausing uh, in hiring grad students. I want to finish what I've started, but Mm -hmm. I do want to hire more undergraduate students right now. So I got some new funds just to support undergraduate student research. So if there are undergraduate students who are from food science or outside food science, they are more than welcome to contact me and they can work in my lab and they'll get paid well. And you don't have to be a food scientist to work in my lab. I have a person who is from mathematics department working in my lab. I have a person from microbiology department. I have an undergraduate who is undecided working in my department. So food science or non-food science, if you're an undergraduate student, you need experience in lab, just contact me and we'll be happy to give you an opportunity. And. By the end of summer, if you're a grad student and you are looking for a job, please contact me.
0: <laughs> It'll be here fast. Yes. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> well, Minto, I just want to say thank you so much for coming in. You know, we really appreciate your time. And I think what you shared is really insightful. I'm, I'm really excited to see where your research goes. And maybe sometime down the road, we'll have you back and you can give an update on the, the micro bubbles and the, the imaging and so on.
1: Yes, thank you very much for inviting me. It was really nice talking to you. Yeah, thank, thank you.
0: you. I'm Zachary Cartwright. This is Water in Food. Find this podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.